Well, Greg got a puppy, and I feel like this is like Chekhov's puppy. He promised a puppy <laughs> at the beginning. We have yet to we see. I have yet to see the puppy. <laughs> I don't want to disturb the puppy. We know what happens when the gun comes out. <laughs> This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today's show, we're talking about the evolution of African-American neighborhoods since the Kerner Commission report in 1968. The Kerner Commission, also known as the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, was established by Lyndon Johnson to investigate the causes of the urban riots in the 1960s. Our guest today is Marcus Casey. Marcus is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Marcus is a co-author of the article, The Evolution of Black Neighborhoods Since Kerner with Bradley L. Hardy, which was published in the Russell Sage Foundation Journal of the Social Sciences in 2018. This was part of a special issue devoted to the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks. Nice to be here, Jeff and Greg. Nice to have you on. Also joining us is Leah Brooks, Associate Professor of Public Policy and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Leah, among other things, is the co-author of a recent working paper called The Long-Run Impact of the 1968 Washington, D.C. Civil Disturbance. Welcome back to the show, Leah. Thank you guys for having me. It is fun to be here. Terrific. Marcus, let's start with the Kerner Report. The Kerner Commission was asked by LBJ to examine the causes of and propose solutions to the destructive urban riots of the 60s. The report itself was a bestseller when it was released, selling more than 2 million copies, which I find as a fascinating historical detail in its own right. Why don't we start with what the Kerner Kerner, Kerner Report said? What neighborhood factors did the Kerner Report identify as important causes of the urban riots of the 60s? Yeah, so the remarkable thing about the Kerner Report is precisely because it focused on neighborhood conditions, right, and the actual causes. So the most controversial aspect of the Kerner Report, and probably the reason why it sold 2 million copies when they released it, was that they placed a lot of the problems of Black neighborhoods at the time at the feet of not only the actions of government, so there was some sense in which the government hadn't been fully enforcing its anti-discrimination laws and so on and so forth. But it also (laughs) more controversially said that white racism, specifically racist actions on the part of individual whites and institutional racism, which has become a buzzword today, but it was relatively new then, were actually a big cause for why Blacks were clustered in neighborhoods in northern cities and that the living conditions in those places were so bad, I guess, for lack of a better term. (laughs) If you go in and read the report, they actually describe in a lot of the cities in which the riots took place. So think about Detroit and Newark and Los Angeles, how bad the situation was. And they linked the idea, not only that there was housing discrimination ongoing, but labor market discrimination that helped keep wages and wealth down. And on top of that, the use of police to sort of patrol the borders along these neighborhoods all together as a primary reason why the living conditions in many of these neighborhoods were so bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think listeners to our previous show with Allison Churcher will recognize some of the strains of that argument and that not just government actions in enforcing segregation and disparities in quality of life, but decentralized decisions and actions by white households are also important for understanding patterns of segregation and disparities. So there's something I think very smart about the structure of your analysis, thinking about the Kerner report and thinking about this distinction or not between people and places. I like very much the start of the article, which says, let's start with the places. So your article focuses on the places, the neighborhoods, that were affected by the urban riots of the 1960s. And you analyze the evolution of neighborhoods in four cities, Detroit, Los Angeles, Newark, and Washington. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened to these neighborhoods 
both the ones that were directly affected by the riots of the 60s and those that weren't. Okay, thanks. So basically what we found, again, this is not a no causal claims being made here about what the riots actually did. This was purely a descriptive analysis just to kind of ask ourselves, what happened in these places and how does that actually relate to the broader conversation surrounding sort of neighborhoods and the recognition that the current commission report largely got it right back in 19 <laughs> in 1968 because the same issues sort of persisted and so what we did was we took the places that were directly riot affected right riots took place there and then compared them to not only places sort of black neighborhoods within the same cities or within the same metros that had not been affected by riots, but also compared them to sort of other neighborhoods in these places, right? And the main things that we find, and you see this around a whole lot of the descriptive statistics in the paper, is that there was a level difference between the places that were affected by riots relative to sort of black neighborhoods, other black neighborhoods that weren't affected, right? So they tended to have higher unemployment rates, lower education levels. They tended to have a much larger decline in population over time. And even though these places had this level difference, there was no convergence between these neighborhoods, right? So the level differences persisted over decades, even when a lot of these places actually changed their population demographics, right? So later on at the end of the paper, we do an analysis and kind of look at how these places transition. Did they stay sort of stable black? Did they take on a lot of Latino immigrants? Did they become gentrified in some respects as proxy by increases in education and white population? And we saw for the most part, most black neighborhoods stay pretty much the same. And the level differences between the places actually stay pretty constant on most of the measures that we want to think about as sort of indicating the health of the neighborhood. And that was a little surprising to us because it sort of spoke to the kind of permanence, as urban economists like to talk about, you know, initial conditions matter, right? But in this case, the initial conditions sort of persisted over time, despite all these other things that happened in the United States, right? We saw what I tend to think of as a decline in the constraints, the decentralized discrimination mechanisms that existed in most of the country. We saw a rise in overall professional status and income among Blacks overall in the nation over the same time period. I mean, heck, as we know in the paper, we saw Barack Obama get elected president, all right? And all these things happened, yet at the neighborhood level, just from a purely descriptive sense, things stayed relatively the same. So the question was, What does that mean? What does that mean for policy? Because as we talk about towards the end of the paper, we've actually thrown a lot of policy, maybe not exactly the same policies that the Kerner Commission or the same amount of money as the Kerner Commission report would have suggested. But we've actually thrown a lot of policies at these places and we've done a lot of things to try to intervene and improve these places relative to where they were before. Right. And we just haven't seen that. And so to us, that's a big conundrum. Yeah. And we say this in the conclusion. Yeah. This is the conundrum of the 21st century is yeah. how do we get improvement if despite all this intervention, we haven't seen much relative change? Yeah. Just to kind of sum up, you saw big declines in these riot affected neighborhoods after 1968. And then the Kerner report comes out saying, like, we should invest in these neighborhoods And not just these neighborhoods, but Black neighborhoods, Central City neighborhoods more generally. And in the four decades, five decades since, you see essentially like zero evidence of catch up, right? There's no evidence that neighborhoods that had initial disadvantages are catching up or converging to other non-Black neighborhoods in these areas. And it does seem like, you know, like we don't know the counterfactual, like maybe without all these policy advantages, these neighborhoods might have fared even worse, right? We don't know that. But it does kind of raise this question, like, have we essentially made zero progress in improving these places, right? Right. And so it also leads into a question about what's the role of gentrification? Because just often that's a bad word in certain circles, But from my perspective, just from eyeball test, I mean, you know, having sort of private sector, private individuals move into places and gentrify the areas 
has been a way in which we've actually seen improvement in these places. But then the question sort of remains, are we improving the lives of the people who've persistently lived there once we start to gentrify? And that, again, is a question, especially for urban economists going into the 21st century, because if what we're doing with terms of gentrification, which is, I think, and most economists would agree, overall on net a positive for many of these urban neighborhoods, but if we're resorting these people to other places and making those places look like what these urban central core neighborhoods looked like before, then again, that's no, no evidence of necessarily progress. We're just moving around people on the same checkerboard, so to speak. Yeah. I'm going to say, I think you can make a claim that central urban neighborhoods are in some ways more critical to a healthy urban area than a given inner ring suburb. That for the urban area as a whole, having these sort of central core areas be healthy and thriving, I think has spillovers in a way that the suburban areas don't. But I don't know, maybe maybe the other urban economists want to say. I think Leah's making an accessibility argument, right? Like what's good about central cities is that when you're there, you're, a lot of things are accessible to you. And as a society, we should be using that resource, right? That accessibility resource. I actually want to talk a little bit more on this gentrification point. Maybe this is an issue because this article is written in 2018 and the census data stops in 2010. Maybe this is sort of on the leading edge, but it's kind of a little bit hard to discern sort of like an aggregate effect of gentrification on these places. Is it because it's just too early or is it that gentrification is sort of magnified in our heads in terms of its overall impact on central Black neighborhoods? Well, I do think it's early, right? But I do also think it's Magnify. I think it's magnified for two reasons in our heads. First and foremost, that all of us pretty much spend a lot of time thinking about central city urban areas, and you can see the contrast. So if you walk around, say, Philly, where you are, Jeff, you can see the big difference between the central city areas and then going up by Kensington or here in Chicago. I live in the West Loop. Right. And there's a big difference between sort of the West Loop and just a few blocks the other way on the west side, East Garfield Park. Right. We see these contrasts and the contrasts are very stark. Right. And I think that's why it's magnified. I lived in D.C. previously and like Leah would tell you, you know, there's a big difference between, say, 8th Street in Northeast versus 8th Street in Southeast, right? Like if you keep going West, if you cross the river, you know, I think these contrasts end up being a big thing, especially because you see the big price differences and you see the demographic differences. In terms of the long-term effect, we don't know yet, right? Because we don't really know how much, who's actually staying long-term in these places, right? I mean, a lot of quote-unquote gentrifying neighborhoods consist of people who are transient in general, right? For example, me, I lived in DuPont Circle when I was living in D.C. I mean, I was only there for two years and I moved out, right? So it's not clear to me what that exposure would be for my kids, right? But if the people who live in these places tend to live in gentrified neighborhoods in all the cities, right? then we might be able to discern an aggregate effect relative to somebody who's moving from a gentrified neighborhood to sort of more conventional or even declining neighborhoods in that way, right? But like my kids live in gentrified neighborhoods in Chicago, D.C., and before that, when they were young in Raleigh, North Carolina, when I was in North Carolina. And so as a consequence, my kids know nothing but gentrified neighborhoods. And so that might have a long-term effect, but we might just call that a neighborhood quality effect. The other thread I wanted to pick up on is how, in your comments, is how prescient the current report was in emphasizing neighborhood factors and neighborhood quality of life as a large component of well-being, especially for children and young people. The quote that I like from the report is that segregation, and I'm quoting from the report, segregation and poverty converge on the young to destroy opportunity and enforce failure. I think we we're all familiar with sort of the volumes of social science literature since then showing evidence of the link between neighborhood level factors and long-term individual level social economic outcomes. Prominent recent example is the work by Ross Shetty and his co-authors using linked administrative data to link neighborhood conditions of children when they're young to their outcomes as they're adults. As you think about that kind of more recent social science literature, I'm sort of interested in what you think 
the ways that we've, as a research community, have improved on or moved beyond that sort of central insight in the Kerner report initially? I think that's one of the most fascinating things about a lot of the more recent research, right? So part of the problem that we face before, say, the work that Rosh Chetty is, has done or before we had enough time with the NLSY or the PSID is that we had data limitations, right? We didn't link people over time in the same way in terms of place as we did for, say, just looking at families, right? People weren't really thinking about how place actually linked and had these sort of long-term effects. And I think one of the key insights, I mean, it's certainly not novel because if you go and look at a lot of the sociology, urban sociology research of the mid 20th century, they talk about this, but in terms of large scale statistical studies using credible research designs, you know, there was a big paucity of, of research up until recently. Now people have sort of sat down and started thinking carefully about this and how they could potentially tease causality out of this. I think we're learning quite a bit, and I think we'll continue to, because not only the research that's coming out and the findings teach us something, but they also tell us about where we need to push our data collection efforts and data construction efforts going forward. And I actually have a lot of optimism about the next few years. If you remember, like every urban economist on this call knows is that we saw the movement to opportunity work back in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? And in some respects, a lot of people came away from that a little disappointed because they thought that by moving people out of, say, the projects, giving them a voucher, it randomized that this would lead to these big effects on families, right? But as we know, reading that research, that once we move these people out of the projects, but often into relatively high poverty areas or places in which they were maybe not totally integrated in their new community, that we still didn't see the big effects, except for maybe some mental health issues related to crime incidents. But since then, as Raj Shetty's work has shown, that actually we did have some long effects. We just didn't measure it for a long enough time, right? Yeah. And so that sort of highlights the importance of, you know, we need these data to be constructed, right? And we need to use these methods, but we also need to provide a little more observation period when we're talking about long-term outcomes, because 10 years, 20 years might not be enough to really see the differences that might arise from living in a better place. Yeah. What I'm hearing is it's not just modern economists coming along and like, you know, rediscovering old truths, but there's actually some progress and some efforts in terms of the specifics of policy and policy implementation and what policy can do to improve welfare. Marcus, can I follow up? What are you most excited about? What's coming online that you're like, ah, this is going to revolutionize how we understand urban areas? Uh, well, I just think that given that we have more data that connects to place, and then we have actual policy proposals that are actually being tested out, piloted. So, so for example, the recent child tax credit expansion, if that's made permanent, I'm interested to see what the long-term effects of actually boosting household incomes, especially for low-income people, in this way. Some of the work that's on the EITC and linking that to place, right? I mean, I've had this long-running belief, so to speak, that I think sometimes the discussion between sort of place-based and people-based policies gets a little bit jumbled in the sense that places are made up of people, right? And so in a world in which we're not heavily sorted, right, then yeah, we need to distinguish between place-based and people-based type policies. However, in a world in which we're so heavily sorted by income and wealth, which we are now, especially in the United States, then many people-based policies, the things that we would consider like income transfer programs, educational programs, and things of that nature, are actually becoming effectively place-based policies implicit. Because we're directing all this effort from the perspective of government transfers, from the perspective of other types of government interventions, to places that are populated with disadvantaged people, then we have a good way of sort of looking at and potentially teasing apart what's the effect of these policies on long-term outcomes because we'll have the data available to actually do that. And in the past, 
I think that was part of the reason why it was very difficult to kind of do some of these causal analyses because we were much more heterogeneous, especially in the Black community. If you know anything about segregation, you could have a dentist living on the same block as somebody who was a laborer. Uh, when I was growing up on the south side of Chicago, for example, I knew plenty of people who lived next to doctors and lawyers in the same neighborhoods, for example, that people who worked for the city, you know, and who made substantially less money. You know, my grandparents who lived just south of the city, they lived on the same block as a Tuskegee Airman and across the street from somebody who owned three furniture stores on the west side of Chicago. And my grandparents were basically working class people who never made much money at all in their lives, right? And so I think that now in this age where we're more heavily sorted on income and wealth, that's much, much less likely to happen today. And so we can much better sort of piece out what transfers were versus spillover effects from having people who were, say, more you know professionally employed or Marcus, role model effects. That's the brightest side I've ever heard of income segregation. I want to follow up and ask you if that's okay with Jeff. So when I read your paper about Black neighborhoods in Skirner, you're focusing almost exclusively on cities. And what you're talking about now is something that I think is so interesting, goes beyond your paper, thinking about this income sorting that we've seen not in the white population and in the black right. population as well, right? We can't see in your paper because you're looking just at cities. You know, we have these really wealthy black suburbs, some of which are... So there's a set of wealthy black suburbs that develop post-Kerner. Right. And then, at least in my reading, from what I see, I live in Washington, the the people pushed out by gentrification seem to be heading to these wealthy black suburbs. And my impression is the wealthy black suburbs are not thrilled about this. It poses this real big political and governance challenge. And I don't have any thoughts about this. This is something I've been I've just been wondering about. So first, I will say that I agree. So let me just talk a little bit about the article itself. The article itself was mainly a kind of a discussions piece that we were trying to, it was part of a larger project, so to speak. So we have this larger project, my co-author Brad Hardy and I, where we were thinking about sort of asking a larger question that usually doesn't get asked in sort of mainstream urban settings. But you hear this a lot if you talk to a lot of Black scholars is, what actually did integration actually bring to Black communities, right? And this question gets asked in a variety of different ways. So I'm not an expert on race per se. I'm not a race scholar, but I am an economist. And so I was thinking about attacking this issue from thinking about, well, what happened to Black neighborhoods nationally when Black people were, you know, a, a constraint was relaxed effectively, right? That in most places, you don't have some sort of centralized mechanism That's keeping Black people out of places. And so as a consequence, Black people, many of whom have sort of professional jobs now, they have professional status. And, you know, because there's not as many sort of overtly racist attitudes being expressed on a daily basis, have often moved to different communities. But by and large, Black people still live in Black neighborhoods, right? And so the question is, is what happened to those neighborhoods? And often you'll hear a discussion about, oh, well, those neighborhoods declined. Because high income black people have left. But really, you know, there's a lot of middle class black people who still live in these neighborhoods. And so when this Kerner Commission report sort of issue came up, my co author suggested that we would take a subset of this work and actually look at specifically. So we, we reached out to, to um, William Collins and Bob Margot because we had seen some of their work on this previously and asked them for a few cities to match up the tracks and just to look what actually happened in these places. How did they evolve? It's a purely descriptive exercise, but it sort of highlights the degree to which Black neighborhoods haven't really changed all that much, even even in places that weren't necessarily riot affected, right? They still lag behind a lot of indicators. And so in these places, right, that have developed these wealthy suburbs, to get back to your question, I think that what we face is now is that because we no longer have that constraint that Black people have to live in Black neighborhoods, that you will start to see a lot of the same sort of resistance to lower income people as you previously saw in white neighborhoods, right? The white response was mostly bundled in two things, right? Low income and 
Black people. Here you have an unbundling of that response to some degree. And now I'm just worried about sending my kids to low income. I think it sort of illustrates the same issues, right? That Black people really aren't that different <laughs> in the sense we just were forced to be kind of different because of the past. And now we're sort of like standard Americans. High income people want to live around high income people. And that's one of the tables that later on in the paper is based on some work that Pat Bayer and Robin Millen did some years back where they were looking at the development of these high amenity, high percentage Black neighborhoods. And they saw that most of this development tended to happen in places like D.C., where there is a significant critical mass of, of Black people. And so as our populations grow in certain places, this will become a sort of issue because, again, we still have the same problem, right? People are worried about their public goods. They're worried about their local public schools and they're worried about these sorts of things. And I think this issue will become more important going forward, right? Because if you can't, you know, especially in a world in which we're, as I said before, facing a lot of income inequality, right? You might have, might see the development of strange bedfellows politically that wouldn't have happened in the past because race and income were so heavily bundled in where people lived. That's so interesting. And the bundling point, I guess, got my law professor brain going because I've dug up some of these restrictive covenants before they became unenforceable and later outlawed. And they will sometimes in the same document require that a house cost no less than a certain amount of money, be built from certain caliber of materials or use an architect. So that's another requirement that inflates the cost and prohibit transfers to African-American or Jewish or other non-white Christian groups of people. And so that's bundling in the same kind of product like you're describing. And now, now that that aspect is illegal, it's interesting to see how those dynamics shift. So you have a lot of fascinating data in this paper. And you know, we've been talking about how it paints differences between riot-affected and non-riot-affected neighborhoods, for example. There are also some interesting similarities and convergence over time that I found kind of surprising. So figure eight, for example, talks about unemployment trends overall and in riot-affected mm -hmm. Black neighborhoods. And the riot-affected neighborhoods are a little bit above, but not that much. And over time, the lines grow closer together. They also are both rising which is interesting. And figures nine and 10 talk about poverty and welfare trends. Right. And one thing that's really striking here is how much public assistance drops off in both categories of neighborhoods, Black neighborhoods affected by riots and, and ones that, and just overall Black neighborhoods. Around 2000, there's just an incredibly steep drop. And I wondered if you had thoughts on that in general, and also through this place versus people-based policy lens, if, for example, like some tools are such blunt instruments that they will just overpower some of these things. So like changes to the welfare system, you know, in the 1990s, for example, as somebody who's an outsider to this literature, that strikes me as maybe one explanation. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on that. So I'll address the second question, the welfare drop off. That's exactly what that is, right? You see a move from sort of cash-based welfare in, in these places to more people going to work and receiving the majority of their benefits via the earned income tax credit, right? And so you see this big drop off. And this shows up if you do any research on sort of welfare. My colleague, Brad Hardy, who's the co-author on this paper, this is his area of expertise. And he sort of assured me that this is actually what you see in all these data sets, right? That you see this big drop off. Basically, welfare rolls really drop off in the late 90s, early 2000s and never recover, right? And most of our transfers come through the form of work-based income support, such as their income tax credit. But the first set of graphs that you talk about, the unemployment, I think this is where I say that you're starting to see this unbundling of race and income as it pertains to place, right? That as we've seen sort of a resorting of people, many of the most likely to be unemployed Black people are starting to cluster in the same neighborhood. And sort of high-end professionals are starting to move out of 
the Black neighborhoods. And that's part of why you see this convergence in unemployment. You see this rise, right? You see this acceleration in the 90s, right? And this is during the employment boom of the 90s. And then after that, a lot of sort of upper middle class Black people have started gentrifying neighborhoods in some of these cities, right? They're often the first gentrifiers. That's often not known. They're just not as visible as white gentrifiers, right? And then the second piece of that is that because these high and upper middle class to wealthy professional Blacks tend to to move away from these neighborhoods with high regularity, the people who are left over are in much more precarious positions. And so on average, you tend to see higher overall unemployment rates, even though you still see this level difference in both these types of neighborhoods. And I think that's where what I mean about income sorting is playing as much of a role nearly as just racial sorting. Marcus, can I follow up on something you said before, which I wanted to bring back up? I thought it was really interesting. You said that among Black scholars, people talk a lot about the consequences of integration. I want to follow up in two ways. First, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about with your money? It's like, what, what's the debate here? So that's the first thing I want to ask you. And then the second thing I want to ask you is, why do you think the rest of us don't talk about it? Is it because we just want to believe that integration is like just on the face of it good? And to say that integration isn't good means that you have to like the converse, which is that segregation is good. And we can't say that. No one wants to say that. So if you could talk about both of those. Oh, yeah. So first off, that second piece, there actually are some people who say segregation is good. <laughs> and you find this sort of discussion. So basically what a lot of these scholars I say, and this is an ongoing conversation, it's just not mainstream, because again, I think you've hit it on the head that for many white scholars, the idea to say that maybe segregation could have been bad. Some people might take that as, you know, as you said, the converse, right? That, you know, segregation was good, right? Keeping these people out were good. But no, the, the conversation that I'm talking about is a little more nuanced than that, right? The question is, is, you know, we've gone through and we've done all these things. We've got Brown versus Board of Education. We have the imposition of these anti-discrimination laws. We have all these other sort of policies that we've been put in place to try to encourage neighborhood integration as a consequence, school integration and things of that nature. To give Black people more access to, say, local public goods and services that would help sort of enhance the life outcomes for their children. And if you look at any of the ongoing research on any of these topics, what are the other main conclusions? That schools are nearly as segregated as they were before, right? We see big fights in local school meetings about, you know, whether they should allow people from the next neighborhood or, you know, should we be busing or should we allow for people who don't live in the neighborhood, right, to enter our public school, open enrollments, charter schools. We see charter schools introduce school choice and almost all these charter schools are nearly as segregated as the local public schools. Our neighborhoods you know, are still pretty similar, as we note in the paper. And so what a lot of these scholars are really asking is, given the effort and resources expended on trying to integrate society, has it really benefited on net Black people relative to just sort of investing in public goods and services for their own children, right? And so maybe we should be spending our time, instead of advocating for integration into a local neighborhood, Maybe we should just push hard for having the resources transferred into our neighborhoods, right? And that's, I think, what the crux of that discussion is. You hear about racial incidents still going on in ostensibly liberal places. And there are some scholars who would argue that, in some respects, the push for integration has caused more harm than good. Now, I don't hold that extreme position, but I'm saying that conversation is ongoing. And a lot of it is stemming from sort of the belief that we're expending a tremendous amount of resources, energy, and causing a lot of fights for access to the local public goods in largely non-Black communities, in white communities in particular. And it's not clear whether that expenditure has been worth the fight. And I think that that's what the question is. And a lot of these statistics just descriptively sort of bear that out, right? We know that certain interventions really work, right? I mean, you know, moving people to lower poverty neighborhoods, taking kids out of poverty, improving the lives and the employment and prospects 
of their parents and those sorts of things. Guess what? None of those things actually require integration. And so, right, integration helps, right, in the sense that putting people in the same neighborhoods might actually provide you more access to networks and things of that nature that really benefit you in terms of job market prospects or going to elite colleges and things of that nature. But those things are often hard fought to achieve, right? And so why don't we build our own networks? Why don't we build our own local public goods? If a lot of this is coming through the mechanism of federal intergovernmental grants, let's make sure that the federal government remembers these communities and not just try to force ourselves into a fight to get into those other communities who are receiving the bulk of those resources. That's where that conversation is. The fact is, is that the persistence of the conditions that are described in the Kerner Commission report, while, you know, I hold an optimistic view on that, which differs from some of my colleagues that I'm referring to, but nevertheless, this is a real robust conversation. And I don't think this conversation goes on among white economists, for example, because of concerns that people might misinterpret their view, right? They're trying to push, you know, and of course, some people might disagree with this, but I think by and large, most of the white or non-Black economists probably look at these things and say, we just need to work harder, right? Because that's what historically has been the, the sort of view on progress in these things. And there's a lot of scholars on the other side, especially Black scholars, and to some degree, some I'm sure you'll find this among Hispanic scholars and other non-white scholars, that maybe that's not the fight we should be having. We should be having a fight more about resources, ensuring we have resources, and using the legal and political structures to do that, right? Let me pull on a result from the paper, which I think is relevant for this thread, which is that you guys document that since 1970, Black neighborhoods have, in fact, diversified significantly. There's more Hispanics, there's more foreign-born populations in these neighborhoods. But despite this, right, not a lot of evidence of white entry into Black neighborhoods, right? Something like 2% of Black <laughs> neighborhoods, right, are eventually, like, transitioned to become uh, white neighborhoods. And so I think this like, is, like, some of the work of, like, Lance Freeman and others showing that historically like, white entry in Black neighborhoods was and is still relatively rare. I think that tells us something about these disparities in neighborhood investments. And it also potentially tells us that these preferences, especially by like white households, are still pretty persistent in sort of generating patterns of segregation. That's definitely true. So this is part of the work I did in my dissertation, right, is that I showed in my dissertation that the probability of white entry once Black, the Black population starts to grow in an area, goes down precipitously, right? And other people have shown this is it isn't entirely new. I just was using new data. But this goes back, if you go and read Ingrid Gould Ellen's book on neighborhoods, she talks about this issue. And of course, you go read some of the work in sociology, people like Mary Patillo and Maria Creason, who's my colleague here at UIC across the way, right? They've all sort of documented this fact, right? So the point here, right, is that if this is going to happen, and as economists, we believe in sort of individualized choices, right? Aggregating up. We can't force people to do all that much in terms of where they live because they're spending their own money. Because people are sort of sorting, which is well established, we can't expect exhortations to, you should live in this neighborhood, or exhortations to some sort of charity or, or goodwill or something like that to actually effectively change. What's been established in the U.S. urban landscape for many, many years now. And so as a consequence, we need to think about alternative ways of sort of supporting the kids growing up in these neighborhoods and supporting the people living in these neighborhoods. And maybe that's not the fight we should be focused on. Right. And that's, again, going back to Rosh Chetty's work. I think this is one of the fundamental lessons that's often not discussed about Rosh Chetty's work. Right. Is that. We need to invest in people where they are, not necessarily try to necessarily move them around because the set of people who you move into another neighborhood, you're putting them in a different set of context. Maybe that leads to a good outcome. But as we're seeing even today on the news, it also causes a lot of fights and we don't really know what the consequences of those sorts of fights and that sort of negativity and maybe even racist activity towards kids actually has on their long-term development as well. 
Marcus, I wanted to pick up on something you were talking about earlier, and that relates to the kind of the terrain on which the debate that you're describing takes place when we're talking about liberalizing restrictions. And it's interesting that many of the conversations are around, as you note in the paper, you know, federal investment in housing, and that's that's a major focus of the Kerner report, and around outlawing express forms of discrimination. And then there are, in addition to investments in housing, there would be investments in schools. That's something that's talked about in the report as well, and potentially transporting people, so like busing, right? So in a nutshell, I guess what I would say is to achieve a higher degree of integration, there's sort of two kind of ways you could do it. You could either move children around, for example, to school and achieve an educational form of integration, or you could either through direct expenditures or by liberalizing land use rules, facilitate more integration. And just an observation that seems like with charter schools and other elements of school choice, we've kind of settled on this model of educational integration where the kids get on a bus as opposed to residential integration where we share nice resource-rich neighborhoods. So I'm not really making a normative point, but rather identifying a lever, which is land use, you know, liberalization to tackle some of these exclusionary zoning rules, for example, and minimum lot sizes. And this is all happening, but at a, it's very hard fought, as you say, and sort of town by town, state by state, there's some energy, but not a lot of law at the federal level for pushing on this harder the way that there was, at least in some respects at the time of the Kerner report with investments in housing and education and so on. So how do we think about forms of integration in view of your findings here? and the value of furthering certain types of integration and levers that might be useful for that purpose? Well, first, the article is is mostly descriptive, so it's not really going into sort of thinking about any sort of particular policy. But I think that the larger kind of point stands, right, that part of the reason why we sort of overly invested in sort of educational integration is because it's a lever that's more amenable to sort of direct federal control, right? Brown versus Board of Education, we have courts to tell them you should do this with all deliberate speed. Now, whatever that ultimately meant, right, is <laughs> debatable. But whereas most of this other stuff is locally controlled, right? And so you're asking people to go into places, you know, sort of undo the things that they think benefit them. I think that's fundamentally part of the problem, right? If you continue to tell people, oh, yeah, all these things benefit you, right? Zoning. And people aren't stupid. I mean, that's the one fundamental piece that I take away from economics. The one thing that I've learned in economics is that despite what we think, people are self-interested and they know what's good for them by and large, right? Maybe not on every single margin and everything else, but people deeply know kind of on average what's good for them, right? And so you're telling a lot of people, that we want you to be an altruist, right? You're worried about your housing prices and your housing wealth. Now, there might be evidence that doing away with restrictive zoning and actually building more might actually not have that big of an effect on your overall wealth profile. But there is a possibility that it goes away, right? That my housing price drops 20% over the next 10 years. There is that possibility. Any economic model will tell us that, right? And so faced with that gamble, so to speak, I mean, why would anybody do that, right? And so, you know, why would anybody want to build apartments in a single family place unless they were altruistic and believed in public goods? And one of the things that's really struck me over since the Reagan era, and this is something that I'm really interested in and related to actually a conversation, including conversations that Leah and I have had once when I visited GWU, is this idea and the decline in investments in public goods. And that's what we're asking people to do. Right. And it's just hard to get people behind that, especially in a world in which income and wealth inequality matter. Right. We've established that. So I do think this thing is amenable to some degree to federal intervention because of that. Right. Because we can't expect local residents, especially homeowners, especially people who are deeply invested in their local public goods like schools and so on and so forth to undo what they've effectively been advantaged by. I think. 
we either have to go through a federal route or we need to think about alternative ways of actually investing in people and especially their children in the neighborhoods in which they actually can move into. Because I just think it's just very hard and I'm very pessimistic about the idea of undoing the things that advantage the people who've already been grandfathered in to a lot of these urban neighborhoods, right? In a depressing way, I want to say I agree with you, Marcus. <laughs> I, I super agree with you. And I want to say I, I did a little reading of the Kerner Commission report so I could sound authoritative on this podcast. And one of the things they say, they're so careful in the in the report to frame these changes as changes that benefit everyone. I mean, because the guys who wrote it were politicians. They knew this. I think they must have known this like deep in their hearts that the only way to sell this change is to sell it as a change that benefits everyone. It's not you sending your money to some black person you never heard of and don't care about, but it's you spending your money for something that's going to benefit everybody, including your own children. That sales job didn't really seem to work. I also want to totally agree with in changes like this, you're asking people to do things that affect two of the things they hold most chiefly important. They're like the value of the home and their own kids, right? You're telling people for the sake of society at large, we'd like you to send your kids to a school that might be not quite as good as the school you can afford to send them send them to by buying a house in this neighborhood. And that is a, like framed that way, that's a political loser. If we want to make changes, we need an ask that doesn't make people feel like they're giving up something that's so deeply held and important. I think it points to the idea that we need to be creative in thinking about what margins we might be able to adjust. Exactly. Right? And the ones that aren't so divisive. We're operating in a constrained environment, but those constraints are somewhat dictated by our past policy choices, right? Like policies that encourage wealth building solely through home ownership and concentrating your wealth in your homes, policies that prize local control over everything else. And I think that's related to our previous conversation with Katie Einstein and Michael Hankinson about the level of the decision-making in a federal system. I want to turn to kind of the outlook. So in the last part of your article, you survey the current state of Black neighborhoods. Pretty convincingly, I think, show us that there's been little progress in helping places that were behind in 1968 catch up. But there have been significant changes in the geography of Black families. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what it might mean for the outlook future. So remember, the main analysis in the paper is really on four cities that right. are troubled cities, right? I right. Mean, right. And, and have been persistently so. Newark, not so much uh, L.A., but Detroit, right? And, you know, Washington, D.C. is not so much anymore, right? That's where the piece where the optimism should come from, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. still has a large or especially primarily black, but also to some degree Hispanic population. But there's also a lot of wealthy, well-educated black people who form neighborhoods or live in neighborhoods like the one I lived in in DuPont Circle and Upper Northwest. And, and there has been a measure of change in those places relative to the times that we're talking about in 1968. And so I think that's where the optimism lies, right? And there was a paper Pat Bayer and Kerwin Charles published in the QJE a couple of years ago that basically looks at sort of income distribution and relative income distributions between Blacks and white males and basically shows that upper middle class Blacks are actually doing pretty well in the United States. They're really benefiting from the institutional structure. We get paid well for being well-educated by and large in the United States. They're living And we can see this in the other data, they tend to live in these pretty amenity-rich environments, or they can if they want to, and so on and so forth. And so I think the real question is the larger question of society is how do we deal with income inequality and wealth inequality going forward and time, especially if we're not going to have constraints on where sort of relatively wealthy people live, right? And a large segment of the Black population matches that, then they're less of a concern as sort of poor Blacks, because poor Blacks are more heavily sorted than other groups, right, in these historically poor neighborhoods. And they also are subject to the other problems that have been documented in society, right? And so to me, I think there's a measure of optimism in the fact that there's a lot of upward mobility given the United States context, right? And it's in line with 
the rest of the United States, but among all groups, I think the, the concern would be is what's the consequence for income and wealth inequality. I participated in another conference earlier this week where they were discussing housing cost burdens. And the thing that really amazed me was that even though we've talked about the post-COVID response and the effects on people, the set of people who were housing burdened before COVID continue to be and even more so after, right? And that's all poor people, right? And I think that's where the real concern should lie, right? It's, it's not just the fact that there are Black poor neighborhoods. There's significantly poor neighborhoods that consist of both Black, Asian. I think that was another piece that came up in this conference was that a lot of Asian people, because they live in major cities, are crazy house cost burden. And these are other populations that are subject to a lot of the same pressures, right? And in a world in which we place things politically, right, in terms of our political discussions around just solely sort of what happened to Black people and persistently so, I think we ignore these other people who might be allies in terms of building the sort of political coalitions to get the type of federal help we need for all sort of cost burden, low income populations. And so I think what we need to do, even though I think that, again, this unbundling to some degree between the Black experience and the low income experience gives us some options politically to actually get some public policy done that would actually benefit poor people. And that would have the effect of benefiting all these groups, including Black people who are on the other side of the income line. That's great. Thanks for coming on to talk about your work, Marcus. I really Thanks for having the conversation. Me. Thanks to Leah, too, for joining us. It was fun, as predicted. Yeah, this was great. Thanks a lot for having me. Now's the time on our show where we give our appendices, which are recommendations for our listeners. Marcus, what's your appendix? Well, when you reached out to me, I had two things come to mind. So forgive me for giving you two appendices, right? So the first one is I would suggest if people want to understand better sort of this issue of initial conditions and how institutions interact with individual choices to lead to persistent outcomes, there's a really nice book. It's a classic in urban sociology called Black Metropolis. And it's a sociologist, St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton. There's a new version out with Mary Patillo writing the forward. And I think that book is actually pretty interesting. It's an interesting synthesis of sort of the conditions facing Blacks who moved to Chicago under the Great Migration and thinking about the institutions. And you can see If you read that with an eye of a scholar who's interested in urban things, you can see a lot of how the institutional environment and the conditions of the 1940s, say, because this was written based on data collected by WPA workers during the Great Depression, but also how that carries forward to the issues that we're still discussing today, carries forward to the Kerner Commission report, and it carries forward to 2021. The other recommendation that I have is actually a new TV show on Showtime that I've been enjoying. And it's called Flatbush Misdemeanors. And for anybody who's really, really interested in urban issues, so any urban economist, for example, would love this show in the sense that even though it's a comedy and it has some, you know, some risque parts and, and things of that nature, the set piece of Flatbush Brooklyn and gentrification and these new people, both a Black person who's from the West Coast and a white person moving to Flatbush and then trying to integrate into this community, this well-established urban community, is hilarious. And they illustrate so many pieces of kind of urban life and urban issues, everything from schools, because one of the characters is a school teacher, the other one is a starving artist, delivery, you know, sort of dealing with pre-existing residents and how tensions might arise there. I really recommend that if you have interest in urban issues. Both sound amazing. Thanks for the recommendations. Leah, what's your appendix this week? All right. My appendix is this book that's been sitting on my desk that I've been meaning to read. And I was hoping that by mentioning it, it would make me feel even more motivated to read it. It's called it's called Public Citizens: The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism, which I thought was a good relation to Marcus's paper and the Kerner Commission. 
Because I think in part, this book helps us understand why the American left has gotten stuck in a certain way. Like the American left, I think, has big idealistic goals, but has failed, I would say, since Johnson in achieving those goals. And this book, I think, helps us understand at least why, in part, arguing that part of the sort of Nader revolution of the late 60s and early 70s engendered a fear of government, not just on the right, but also on the left. But I've read 20 pages. So if you ever have me on again, I can tell you a little more. Well, I love that. I also would recommend having lots of books that you haven't read yet, because I feel like that is very aspirational. Uh, (laughs) Let the record um, reflect that I'm pointing at the bookshelf behind me right now. (laughs) I too have a large collection of books that I've yet to open, but I'm looking forward to reading all of them. Yeah, I would also recommend uh, Jonathan Rada's book, our previous guest, uh, called Why Cities Lose, which helped me understand a lot of the political dynamics of this country over the last several decades. Very good. Greg, what's your appendix? So I wanted to flag a post by our guest, Marcus Casey, along with Randall Akey, on the Brookings site called Measuring Racism and Discrimination in Economic Data. You know, in... Marcus's paper that we talked about today, he studiously avoids drawing causal conclusions. And as we were chatting, Marcus, you were appropriately careful about all that stuff. And that's very sound social science. One thing that you and your colleague mentioned in this post is that it's just actually very hard to get a lot of good data, especially specifically data that helps measure outcomes in terms of race. And in the post, you folks identify several areas where you think that data would be particularly helpful. And one that I thought was interesting is longitudinal data, because it might not be obvious why it would be possible to create new longitudinal data today, since by definition, you know, the underlying data has to come from a long time ago. But I think you indicate here that some of these, some of the underlying data does exist, it's just not linked And there are databases that don't talk to each other. There's a lot of behind the scenes kind of work that needs to happen. And when I read this, I thought of President Biden's executive order on racial equity. And I gather the social science community, there's a a conference that you mentioned here, has taken up this sort of larger challenge of of assembling better data. And in my own work, I've seen the U.S. Department of Transportation undertake a request for racial equity data, specifically how they can gather it better. So I really liked the kind of focus on the plumbing in this short post. And I would love to see more of this become available and become linked and become accessible to the public, as well as researchers in meaningful ways. So thank you. Thanks, Rick. So my appendix this week, since we're talking about the dynamics of Black neighborhoods this week, I thought I would highlight an article that I really like called The Ecology of a Black Business District by Franklin D. Wilson, which appeared in the Review of Black Political Economy in 1975. This is a fascinating article. So what Franklin Wilson is doing in this article is measuring the evolving geography of the Black Business District in Birmingham from 1883 to 1970. So this was like straight up my alley, inject this into my veins. (laughs) There's some like interesting findings. So sort of like the antebellum era Before 1900, initially, Black and white businesses were integrated together in a single central business district that was concentrated around like 1st through 4th Avenues in downtown Birmingham. But then after 1900, what he documents is that as the number and types of Black businesses starts to rapidly increase, Black businesses are increasingly concentrated and segregated into a new district that's around like 4th Avenue. I find that, well, one, it's like an amazing piece of quantitative social science, but I also find the story kind of interesting too. And he attributes this shift to a couple of factors. So one is sort of the changing nature of Black-white relations after Reconstruction. Another factor was the rapid growth and demand for downtown location around this time by both white and Black-owned businesses. And so like what I kind of have in mind is as downtown is becoming a more important economic center... That's sort of increasing the factors driving segregation. So I thought that that was an interesting story. 
just in terms of ephemera, like table one in this paper is this amazing before GIS, pre-GIS visualization of how the geography of Black businesses is changing over time. And so it's a big table and each row is like a street or an avenue. And then each column is a year between 1883 and 1970. And then the cells are the share of Black businesses located on that street in that year. And so you can just read across to see the center of the Black business district shift from sort of the original downtown to the new area around 4th Avenue. Anyway, I thought that's a pretty incredible figure. Thanks for bringing that up. I want to take a look at that one. (laughs) (laughs) It is also like criminally undersighted, according to Google Sites scholars. So hopefully we can bring some attention to that paper. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Marcus Casey, Leah Brooks, Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to some of the articles we discussed on today's show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Densely Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Shell. I'm at Jeff Arlen. Marcus is at Mark D. Pace. Leah is much smarter than us and not. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you do your podcast. And take a second to rate and review the show as well helps other listeners discover our show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants that do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.